1 Samuel chapter 29. If you want to turn there with me. I think a very fitting verse as we come to this section now in 1 Samuel chapter 29, chapter 30, uh, is that statement where Paul made in the New Testament where he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And the idea is that when we are at our lowest, when we press the boundaries of sin and failure and mistakes, it's amazing how that the grace of God superabounds outside of even our greatest times of failures, our lowest points in our lives. And I think what we see with David in these chapters is a good reminder of that very truth that we find in the New Testament. Now, to kind of set the backdrop for chapter 29 where we're going, it's important because the backdrop really emphasizes more of the potency of the story that we'll be looking at. You remember, if you were not with us in chapter 27, we're told that David really took a spiritual detour in this season of his life. Uh, We're told in chapter 27 that David, under the weight, as we said, about eight and a half or so years into this time of wandering in the wilderness, eluding Saul's attempts to assassinate him, to chase him down, to make his life miserable, that David, just under the weight of, it seems, of discouragement personally, And just the stress, the weight of responsibility of caring for the 600 men that were with him, the wives, the children, just the stress that he had been under, a compounding uh, trial for eight and a half years, as probably all of us would have come to a place of weariness, that David said in his heart, uh, one day I'm just going to perish at the hand of Saul anyway. Uh, I'm just, I'm done with this whole thing. I, I can't take it anymore. And nothing would be better for me than to just go down to the land of the Philistines Saul will lose interest in chasing me anymore and he'll despair of me and he won't seek me anymore. And David basically for about a 16-month period now leaves where he should have been and kind of just really in some ways somewhat backslides. He just departs. He goes and makes himself uh, a resident among the people of the Philistines. He goes and dwells in enemy territory of all places to the actual land of Gath, the place where Goliath, the giant he had slew, was from. And he goes back again there into a territory he had been before and he actually dwells, submits himself to Achish, king of Gath, and dwells among that territory. He asks for a rural location. He says, look, king, I don't deserve to dwell with you. I don't need that. Just give me a place off in the country somewhere. And he's awarded the territory of Ziklag. And for 16 months, David's dwelling there among the Philistines, I believe outside of what God would want for him as the result, again, of just his discouragement and listening to the thoughts and desires of his own heart. He departs from God's plan for his life for a season And and it works. Saul kind of backs off for a little bit. And for 16 months, he's there in the southern part of the Philistine territory. And he's going around. We saw making raids and capturing different territories. And when he would come back to Achish, the king of of Gath, of the Philistines, Achish would say, so where did you make a raid today? And what did you do? And, And David was giving the impression that he actually had defected over to loyalty to Achish, king of Gath among the Philistines, and that he had defected away from King Saul and all of Israel, and that he actually was attacking Jewish people and raiding them and taking their supplies. And what David was actually doing was raiding territories. Instead, we saw the Geshurites and the Amalekites, people who were not God's people, 
And he would actually then murder every man, woman, and child after he would take a territory as a cover-up so that none of them could bring back word to Achish and actually tell Achish what David really was doing, which was he was not killing Jews. He had not defected from his own people. And he was basically living a lie before King Achish. And Achish thought that David had completely ruined his relationship with his own people, that there was no way that this man would ever become the king of Israel now because he slaughtered his own people and that he had totally defected in his loyalty over to Achish. So much so that we saw that Achish had actually said to David, therefore, I'm going to make you my chief guardian forever. The idea is that you are going to be the head of my security staff. And Achish had put that much stock in what David was doing because David had so well deceived him by lying to him in the way that he had at this point. So it's with that understanding now, again, David for 16 months outside of God's will, outside of God's best, in a place where he's not supposed to be living in enemy territory. And we come to chapter 29, verse 1, and we see how, and we should thank God for this, that even when we are at our lowest points, God never gives up on us. And, And he still comes after us. And he pursues us and he persistently does everything he can to dig us back out of the hole, to get us back on track, no matter how far we've detoured. And these chapters are a fitting example of that very thing. Watch what happens. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, that's sort of the the northern area of Philistine territory, and what's kind of around the area, if you look on a map geographically, kind of about the southern area, uh, or I shouldn't say this, the central area of Israel, what would be between the Sea of Galilee, which is in the north, and the Dead Sea in the south. Aphek is around sort of the central location between those two bodies of water, about the central part of Israel, which again shows you how far the Philistines have encroached at this point in taking territory in Israel as the result of Saul's failures as a king himself. So they array their armies at Aphek. They're ready to launch an attack. The Israelites in defensive position encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel, a little bit north of there. And the lords of the Philistines, verse 2 says, passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. So what we have here, again, it references the lords of the Philistines. As we said before, the Philistines as a people were basically broken up into like five major city-states. You had Gath and Ashkelon and Ekron and and, and these five sort of city-states, almost kind of like we think maybe like counties within a state. And there were different lords or or kings over these city-states. So uh, you have these five different territories coming together now as a confederation of the people of Philistia. And they all now come together bringing all their armies. And they're basically having like this military procession as a show of force so they can kind of review the troops and see what they're bringing to the battlefront as they're now coming together from the different territories of the Philistines and they're passing in review by hundreds and by thousands and lo and behold, there at the tail end where the people of Gath are passing by, it says, verse 2, that David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish, who was the king of Gath at that time. In verse 3, the typical question arises, Then the princes of the Philistines said, wait a minute, what are these Hebrews doing here? In other words, we're about to go 
attack the Israelites. We're about to go kill the Hebrews. What are the Hebrews doing in our army? The war hasn't even started yet. What, what are Hebrews doing among us? They don't belong among us. We, we're the enemies of the Hebrews. So they take notice here what's happening. The unbelieving people are recognizing that God's people are out of place in what they're doing. They say, wait a minute, what are God's people doing here among us? Certainly, this is out of place here. God's people don't belong with us. It's kind of sad when the unbelieving world has to recognize and draw attention to that. And so basically, that's what's happening here. They are out of place. They're not with the people of God, doing the things of God. Instead, they're among the enemies of God's people. They're kind of among the world, if you would. And they're completely out of place. And now it's being brought to the surface. And it's kind of being flushed out by the questioning of if you would the ungodly saying wait a minute what are these people doing here you don't belong here this is out of place and I'll tell you it's always a very sad and a tragic thing when the people of God have to be rebuked by the unsaved world you know where perhaps somebody that is a non-Christian may say um, what are you doing here what are you doing here in this environment I mean aren't you a Christian what, what are, you don't seem to belong here or why are you participating in what we're participating in here or, or, or why are you involved in what we're involved in here why are you in the same activities that we're I mean we know why we're doing what we're doing but I thought you were different I thought you were a Christian and, and so here this is kind of what's happening here this awkward moment where there's this questioning what are these Hebrews doing among us here again as God's people we know that certainly we're to have an influence on the world, but we are called to a life of separation. There should be an aspect of separation in the way that we live our lives from the rest of the people in this world and the activities and things that they pursue and engage in that should cause us to be set apart. Second Corinthians speaks of it in this way in chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Lawlessness. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell among them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, the Lord says, come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. And sometimes God has to say that to us, maybe in relation to our workplace or what we do recreationally with our friends or those outside of the workplace or things that we're engaging. And sometimes the Lord has to say to us, what are you doing? You should not be doing the same things that other people around you. You should be living separate and set apart. And, and sometimes we need that rebuke from the Lord. And sadly, it's somewhat embarrassing and, and shameful when it has to be the unsaved world that says to us, what are you doing? Rather than the Lord saying, come out from among them, be separate. And perhaps that's something God would say to us this evening. What have you been doing engaged in those things come apart be separate and so David here is kind of being exposed at this point in this awkward way as they realize that the armies are there there are Hebrews among them well Achish comes to David's defense of course he's been dwelling among Achish's territory for 16 months faithfully so Achish said to the princes of the Philistines is this not David the servant 
of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or actually these years, he says. And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. So Achish right away says, listen, you don't have to worry about this guy. I mean, I mean, this guy's in with us. Now, again, that's really bad, too. What, when you have you know, un, unsaved people saying, look, you don't have to worry about this guy. He can put booze down with the best of them. I mean, he's not. I mean, I mean, he can he can carouse just. Like, I mean, this guy has. He's good at what he does. And and here he's saying this guy's solid. He's defected. He's not loyal to his prior king. He's not living that way anymore. He has defected to me and has totally crossed over to the other side. But verse four, uh, the princes of the Philistines were angry with Achish, so they said to him, "Make this fellow return. Get this guy out of here, that he may go back to the place." to which you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us to battle lest in the battle he become our adversary for with what could he reconcile himself to his master if not with the heads of these men so they say look this is crazy if you let this guy stay with us in a battle what a perfect opportunity for him if he has defected to reconcile himself back to his king because right in the midst of the battle he'll be among our ranks and he can start lopping off our heads as a way of, of causing you know, a weakness among us. And they say, look, this is insanity. What are you doing? This guy does not mix with us. He does not matter in the way that the rest of us, you need to get rid of this guy. Send him back. And, and he's, he's basic, they're, they're basically begging that Achish would come to his senses and send David back away from the enemies of God's people and send him back really where he belongs. They say, is this not David of whom they sang to one another in the dances? Remember we saw when David would come back from the battles, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. So that, that, that's been a hit song for about 10 years now. I mean, that's been on the, everywhere David goes, that song is following him and his reputation of who he is, that he was the champion of Israel, that he was the warrior that God used powerfully, even better than the very king of Israel himself. Now notice what's happening here. God's providential hand is keeping David from engaging in this battle with the Philistines against the Jews, whereby he would kill and shed innocent blood and participate in the shedding of innocent blood of the people of Israel. If David had participated in that to any extent, do you realize the, the, the travesty that would have been, the shame that would have brought to his conscience and upon his reputation, and it would have so tarnished everything about David's reputation, it would have very likely have completely destroyed the calling of God upon his life. If he had entered into a battle with the Philistines and was killing the Jewish people, he would have probably ruined forever his opportunity to be ultimately received as their king, which is exactly what God's called him to do and has for him right around the corner in literally, as we said, about a little less than a year and a half. And so here, God in his providential hand is intervening, orchestrating circumstances where the other people among the Philistine lords are saying, there is no way this guy's going to bed. Get this guy out of here. And God's indirectly sending David away to keep David from participating in something that would have caused tremendous pain and problems in the consequences it would have brought in his life down the road in the future. And what a beautiful thing to see here, keeping David from progressing forward in further error. Boy, let me tell you, there have been numerous times in all of our lives 
Times we were conscious of it, maybe. And then other times where we were completely oblivious, where God was interfering and running interference to keep us from progressing even further in the path of failure we were already on. And maybe we had already made a little bit of a mess and done some things wrong. And we, if it were not for God's intervention and running interference and using circumstances and situations, and we weren't even participating yet. We weren't even in a repentant state yet. God was already running interference because he was trying to keep us in his mercy from progressing even further in what would have brought more pain or greater consequences or a bigger mess or a devastation of everything in our life. And, and here God is doing this for David and God has done this in our lives. And how wonderful that he's so merciful to intervene like this. Well, verse six, Achish then called David and reports to him and saying, surely, notice, interesting, as the Lord lives, talk about a mix-up, you have been upright. Boy, that's awkward. That's the furthest thing from what David had been, upright. David had been dishonest, but he had played the part well. You've been upright, David. You're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I have found evil, not found evil in you, from the day of your coming to me, nevertheless, the lords of the Philistines do not favor you. Therefore, again, return now, go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Now, can I just say this statements that Achish is making, that had to be very convicting to David. I mean, can you, you're totally living a lie, man. For 16 months, you are giving a false impression to everybody that you're something that you're really not. You're acting like you're doing things that you're really not doing. And you're basically living a total sham, living in hypocrisy and making up stories and keeping an image outwardly when you have a whole double standard of a life going on over here in the dark and you're doing everything you can to cover it up, even killing people so they can't rat on you. And now here is Achish saying, David, I mean, I mean, as the Lord of you have been so upright. I mean, I can't find one thing wrong in you. You're such a stellar man. Your character is impeccable. And I can't imagine David must have been feeling, oh man, this is convicting. I mean, can you just imagine how that must have been the light that God was shining into his soul, feeling so low, thinking, oh my goodness, I have done such a good job of deceiving people and holding such a false image being deceptive in my lifestyle. Here's Achish praising David for everything that he was not. And now again, what is he doing there, verse 7? Again, God now through Achish saying, return, go, leave. Again, God was, as I said, overriding the events and closing off doors on David for his own good. God's putting an end to what David was pursuing, the error in his wrong way of living, trying to deliver David. God is intervening saying, David, if you don't want to repent, I'm going to do everything I can to help you come there. I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of this mess, to get you back where you're supposed to be, out of the land of the Philistines, away from the course that you're on. Thankfully, God is loving and faithful enough to get us out of unhealthy things, as I said, even when we're not trying to do what's right ourselves. Thank God that he does that, that he loves us enough that he actually will step in and is loving and faithful even when we are at our low points and doing what's wrong to try and deliver us out of that stuff. 
to get us out of those situations. And, and here God, he's just orchestrating natural events to purposely close doors and shut off avenues for David in this situation to deliver him from it. Verse 8, so David said to Achish, now this is almost, I mean, somewhat ludicrous. He says, what have I done? Why can't I go out with you and kill some Hebrews? I mean, David, what are you thinking here? You're having every opportunity to get out of this. God's giving you an escape hatch. He's opening the door to set you free. Your boss is saying to you, look, David, I'd love to bring you to battle. No personal harm, no foul between me or you. But the rest of the lords of the Philistines, they don't favor you. They're not down with this. So you know what? Hey, take a rest for a while. Head out. Depart. They, they just, it's not going to work. No problem between me and you. And instead of David saying, thank you, God. <laughs> you got me out of this without even humiliating me. Without even blowing my cover just between me and you, God. I am ashamed and embarrassed. And you didn't even shame me publicly before all these people for my deception and dishonesty. And you're just getting me out of it. Instead, David's fighting against it. Talk about stubborn. What have I done wrong, he says. To this day, you found favor with your servant. As long as I've been with you, that I might not go out and fight against the enemies, boy, that's pretty sad, of my Lord the King. How dull and stubborn we can be when we're not living right, man. I mean, it is sad to recognize how truly dull-hearted and stubborn and deceived that we can become when we're not in a right place spiritually we actually what david's doing he's fighting against god's best for his life right now he's actually resisting god's attempts to get him out of the mess here saying why why can't i go out with you well achish insistent answered and said to david i know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of god Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master servants who've come with you. And as soon as you're up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel to engage in the battle. Again, how faithful and persistent how faithful and persistent God is in our lives to protect us, to preserve us from further sin and error. As I said, that he would frustrate even our plans, that, that he would ruin even paths that we may be on or do things to circumstantially cut off avenues and close doors so they do not work out for us to keep us from our own insanity sometimes or to protect us from our own poor choices or times when we're going in a direction that is not God's will and God's plan for our life. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot in your Bible or your notes here, Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, verse 35 through 37. Let me just read to you a, a brief account of something from there. I've always loved this story because it illustrates what God's even doing here with David. Second Chronicles 20 says this in verse 35. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to go make ships to go to Tarshish. But Eliezer, the son of Dodavah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you've allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works and the ships were wrecked, so they were not able to go to Tarshish. I love this story. 
It tells us here, Jehoshaphat makes an alliance with the king of Israel that was a wicked, ungodly king. So again, this is that a godly individual getting himself into an alliance, a relationship with someone they should not be in a relationship with that's not healthy for them. And they're going to begin to build ships together and go on these pursuits and, you know, pursue this journey together. And the prophet of God says, this is not God's plan that you've entered into. So God's going to destroy your works and God wrecks the ships so they can't set sail. And I'll tell you something. I am so thankful that God loves us enough that sometimes when we get ourselves allied with certain things, maybe we get into relationships that we should not be in. Or we get into situations that we should not be in or partnerships we should not be in or, or we're ready to, to go on journeys and launch out into something that we are not supposed to be involved with that God says, you know what? I love you so much. I'm going to ruin the ship. <laughs> I'm going to destroy the ship so they never set sail for you. And I'll tell you, what a wonderful thing that God loves us enough that he's willing to break our little sailboat at times. And we think, oh, God, why, why, what are you doing this for? God, what did you break my sailboat for? And God says, because that thing would have took you on a journey that would have took you way off course. And it would have brought you to get involved in things that would have not been good and would have not been healthy. And thank goodness, I, you know, I, I honestly pray sometimes, Lord, if this is not of you, then Lord, just please break the ship for whatever set sail. Just do what you need to do, Lord. You're sovereign. And I'm thankful God does that. He uses circumstances and situations and he causes things to happen. And all of a sudden, I don't understand. Why did that person break up with me? Well, I'll tell you why they broke up with you. Because <laughs> there's a God in heaven. That's why they broke up with you. Or I don't understand. Why didn't this partnership work out? Well, because God loves you and maybe that partnership was not the best thing. And so God at times will intervene and again, break up the ships and keep things from setting sail so that perhaps we don't end up on journeys and doing things that we should not. And that's what's happening with David here. But watch what happens. The unfortunate consequences now begin to come to pass. God's delivered David. That's a good thing. Got David out of this mess, kept him from entering into a battle and killing Jews, which would have been horrible. However, this little journey for 16 months down to where he was and getting engaged in what he did it did not happen without consequences and we see what happens. David's been away now from Ziklag, from the families, the wives, the children where he had set up camp there. And remember, he had been going out and attacking different people groups. One of those people groups was the Amalekites. And it says now as they're on their way back to Ziklag, they're a few days journey out. It happened when David and his men, chapter 30, verse 1, came back to Ziklag. They arrived back at home on the third day why they've been away at the battlefront that the Amalekites whom they had been attacking in prior seasons knew apparently that they were away, the men, and were vulnerable, that they invaded the south and Ziklag, David's home territory, and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great and they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So as David is off doing things that David was not supposed to be doing, he left his family vulnerable. And as a result, the enemy came in and capitalized on that vulnerability. And now David and his men come back 
and they find their territory burnt with fire. There are no one around, so they don't know, have they taken people away because they've taken them prisoner and captives? Have they murdered everyone? They have no idea what's happened, but we see they just return to this charred territory and realize that there's been an invasion that's taken place. Now, let me say in regards to this, the failures of men, and that's what this is, is what's contributed to the vulnerability of the attack of the enemy that's caused this personal loss and harm to these families here. And two particular failures of men. First of all, it says it was the Amalekites that came and did this. Well, right away, that speaks of the failure of Saul himself. Because Saul, if you remember, had failed to obey God because God told Saul to destroy and eradicate the people of Amalek because they were a barbaric and a cruel people. And because of the condition they were in, God had asked Saul to take judicial you know, efforts against them and to remove them. And Saul did not obey the Lord. He did not fully obey the Lord. So as the result of that, he left some of the people of Amalek alive. And now here they are coming back around, causing problems again. And again, it's a perfect fitting picture of exactly what happens when we don't obey God and we don't fully obey God and we make compromise. Well, I mean, I partially obeyed God there and God says, no, I want you to deal with this and cut it off altogether. And we don't do that. It always resurfaces and comes back around and causes problems later on. And Amalek is always a picture in the Bible, typically of the flesh. And God has one intention for our flesh, our sinful nature. He says, crucify it, put it to death. So when there are areas of our sinful nature that God knows are harmful and destructive and God says, look, don't make a compromise for that. Don't give it a little opportunity. Well, I mean, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to pretty much deny, I mean, deny the majority of it. I mean, once in a while, I'll give it a little bit of access. Once in a while, I'll, I'll give it a little bit of indulgence. And listen, if we do that and we are not severe and direct with putting to death the fleshly sinful desires that want to control and conquer our lives, they will come back around and resurface and they will bring a raging ravenous fire and destroy and ruin not only us, but a lot of times end up causing damage to our families and to our loved ones and everything that's precious in our lives. And because of Saul's failure, that's what's happened here. The Amalekites shouldn't even have been around. But this also is a direct result of David's failure as a man as well because David had been off pursuing things, as I said, that God had not directed him to do. If David, first of all, had never taken this little detour down to, to where he did in Philistia for 16 months, these events would have never happened. If David wasn't off trying to fight battles that God had not called him to fight and he wasn't off engaged pursuing things that God had not called him to pursue, he would not have left his family there vulnerable and Amalek would have never come in and would have never burned his home life and would have never taken his family members vulnerable in the moment into their captivity. And so David here, because he's outside of God's will, leaves his family vulnerable and horrible things happen. And listen, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We need to be very careful that we're being good stewards, that sometimes we are not off chasing things and doing things and pursuing our own self-interest more than once. Listen, I tell you, and particularly I have watched, and I'm not even going to say men anymore because we live in a culture today where it's just as esteemed for women to go out and run the corporate rat race as much as it is for men today. 
And I have watched more than once where people are off chasing this battle and conquering this hill and pursuing that. In the meanwhile, where they're out running and chasing and engaging. Listen, I understand we've got to make a living. I'm not saying we should, we got to be work, we got to be responsible, but what I'm telling you is sometimes we're out chasing and pursuing and running after all these things, and while we're doing that, we're leaving our family and home life vulnerable, and the enemy comes in and brings a raging forest fire, and all of a sudden, our wives and our children and our families are getting taken captive by the enemy because we're off running and chasing hard after things, and we're not present enough at times to defend and to hold down the fort in ways that we should. And here David makes a grievous mistake here. Amalek comes in, they burn the territory. It says they take people captive that were there. Thankfully, they didn't put them to death. They took them captive because they wanted to sell them as slaves. It would be much more lucrative. They carry them away. Verse three, so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive And David and the people who were with him, his men lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail as well, had been taken captive. So again, we can just envision what this would be like here. As I said, imagine you, let's say, are away on a, let's say, a three-day business trip or some journey and you come back to your home and as you pull up into your driveway you see nothing but smoke and ashes where your house is and you have no idea where your family is and no no answers no information and so these men come back and they know what's happened here they come back they see the territory smoking from a fire and they realize the wives the sons the daughters have all been taken captive and it says they are so overwhelmed with the fears of the worse what's happened here and the reality of stricken with grief that it says in verse 4 there they lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep and let me just say again these are rough tugged uh, tugged <laughs> tugged that's, that's a kind of ancient word I mean, these are, you know, these are Rambo, Green Beret, I mean, army-hardened men who fought hand-to-hand combat. But when they see this happen, they are so stricken with grief. It says here, they were weeping so hard until they had no more power to weep. They're just overwhelmed with the grief of the loss that has just come to pass. And they're thinking, oh my goodness. We've just lost everything precious to us. And here, here are, are strong men and they're weeping. You know, one man said before, tears are the blood of the soul. I like that. I, I think that's very fitting. Tears are the blood of the soul. And I'll tell you something. Not to say there's not something about women crying, but if you have ever been in the presence before and watched a man begin to break down and just grieve and weep convulsively there is something that is extremely powerful to watch a man with all of his masculinity come to a place where he is so broken so grieved so stricken where they just begin to weep and to convulse here and literally like like I said like the blood of the soul is pouring out of them as they're weeping and here this is the condition that David and his men find themselves in as they discover what's happened And verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed. For the people 
spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was so grieved, every man for his son and daughter. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So we can imagine David is their leader. He's the one that led them into all these things. He's feeling the weight and the responsibility of his own choices and the impact and influence they've had on his own men. It says here that David was distressed. The word distressed means troubled or distraught. It speaks of being worried and strained under pressure. So take those terms and add the word greatly to it. He's greatly worried. He's greatly troubled. He's greatly straining under the pressure of his own family loss, his own personal loss, and the reality that this has had a ripple effect now and some 600 other families have experienced this same loss because of some of David's choices and actions. And it says in verse 6, another thing that made him greatly distressed is he became aware that his men were actually speaking of stoning him. They were so hurt and so upset and angered, they were contemplating a rebellion against David as their own leader. He knew his own life was in jeopardy. So as David's under the weight of all these things in this overwhelming, lonely situation, what does David do? It says that David drew strength from the Lord so that he could carry on. David comes to a place, I believe now, where he's broken. And unlike Saul, who would continue to be stubborn and rebellious and never repent, David comes to a place of godly sorrow which leads to repentance. And David in his brokenness cries out to the Lord. It says, David, in this moment of deep distress and probably utter loneliness, because even his own men now are ready to put David to death. They're so upset and disappointed with him about what's happened. David realizes, I have nowhere else to turn. And he turns to the one person who will always be there, no matter how bad we failed. And no matter how lonely we feel, there is always still one who will never abandon us who will never say you have just gone too far. There's, n there's one who will always stand with us. And so David turns to the Lord and it says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And this chapter shows how the Lord infused David with strength. Psalm 138, David says this later on. He says, in the day when I cried out to you, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Paul, when he was in a time of great stress and loneliness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, says that my first defense, no one stood with me and all forsook me. He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And what a wonderful thing that sometimes, listen, we may go through circumstances. We may find ourselves in situations. And sometimes, let's be candid, it may even be of our own making that we had great loss and we cause problems and consequences and, and great stress and, and, and major problems. And maybe we contributed to that. And, and maybe it may, may not be the case. But there are going to be times in all of our lives, there are going to come occasions like this, where we are greatly distressed under the weight of this world and things we're facing and challenges and perplexing situations. And on top of that, maybe where we may be completely feeling like we're standing all alone and there's not a human being that would be there for us. And even if they were, we even feel like even if they were here, I don't even know how to explain to them how I feel. I couldn't even tell them what it feels like. And we couldn't, even, we couldn't even articulate it to another person because there's something that we're going through that no one would even be able to understand if we tried to explain it to them. And it's in those moments, thanks be to God, 
that we can turn to the Lord our God and He understands and that He's compassionate and helpful and that He will stand with us and renew our strength and that we can draw strength from the Lord as David does here. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, we have to learn how to do that. We have got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn how to draw strength from the Lord in these times in our lives so that we don't ultimately unravel at the seams. Like David, we have to learn how to strengthen ourselves by receiving from God what we need to go on in these times of hardship. So David then turns to Abiathar and says, please bring the ephod here to me. This is again was the part of the priestly garment, how they discern the will of God. So David, notice what he's back to doing now, first indication of repentance, he wants to know what God wants. I guarantee you, David wants to go chase after and, and, and rescue his family, but this shows he's broken, he's humble because he says, God, you know what? I'm done being in charge. This last 16 months has been a mess, God. Do you want me to pursue? God, I want you to lead me because I haven't been doing a very good job recently. So David here, right away, shall I pursue this troop? It must sound strange for him to ask that in your humanity. Your, your family's gone. Everything in you is saying, go chase your family. Shall I pursue the troop? Shall I overtake them? If I do, why overtake them or will they overtake me, God? And God answered him, pursue David, for you shall surely overtake and without fail, recover all. So God gives him guidance and God gives him an amazing promise. Again, talk about the grace of God. You should write the word grace across that. God doesn't go, oh, all of a sudden now, David, your life's a burning, fiery mess and you've lost everything and everyone. Now you want to talk to me? I'm sorry, it's time out for a little while. Text me in three or four years when you get your life together. I mean, there's none of that. The instant his heart turns in repentance to God, God's merciful, God's compassionate. God doesn't hold him at arm's length or put him in a penalty box for a while. God just graciously answers him, begins to give him guidance again, even gives him an amazing promise. David, I'm going to be with you. You're going to be victorious and you're going to recover everything. You're ultimately going to recover everything, David, as I work on your behalf. So David went, he and the 600 men with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where they stayed and were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, we'll talk about this more next week, because they were so weary they couldn't cross the brook. So they go about 16 miles and 200 of the 600 men are so exhausted and depleted, they can't even travel any further. So David continues now with the 400 men. And as they go, verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. The sugar would revitalize him. And when he'd eaten, his strength came back for he had eaten no bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So they're being compassionate to this stranger that they found. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. Wait a minute, did you say Amalekite? You're a servant of an Amalekite? Yeah, an Amalekite. My master left me behind three days ago because I fell sick. Shows you how cruel that master was. People were disposable. Hey, you're sick, you're weak, you can't serve my purposes anymore. You're disposable. Leave this guy behind. He'll die in a few days. That's how some people operate in leadership. Verse 14. 
we made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the southern area of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say Ziklag? Like Z-I-K-L-A-G? And you burned it with fire? Yeah, yeah. That was part of what we were doing when we were in the area. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you'll neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. Now, now take notice, again, what happens here? You want to talk about God mercifully and graciously. Again, what's he doing? He's superintending and he's controlling all the events of just everyday circumstances. Even in the allowing of this horrible mistreatment of this Egyptian who was just a slave of the people of Amalek who they kicked to the curb because he's sickly and they say, look, we don't want an extra sick guy around. Just throw him on the side of the road. He'll die in a few days. We got plenty of slaves anyway. And God allows that to happen and that that person will be in the right place at the right time just as David is... David doesn't even know where he's going. He's just praying, Lord, am I going to succeed? Yeah, you're going to succeed. And as he's walking in his paths, what is it? Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths right to the people of Amalek. (laughs) And he finds this guy. Who gives and they're just compassionate, they're being kind, helping him out, giving him some food. And and all of a sudden David finds out, Lord, you're in this. Wow. This this guy's the key to and, and again we see how God here directing David's paths, allowing things to transpire in a way that would cause David to be helped in exactly what God wanted for David to be able to experience. How wonderful. This is exactly the kind of stuff God does in our life. God puts people in our paths and he orchestrates circumstances and situations in such a way to graciously bring together the pieces to help us in the processes of our lives when our hearts are right before him, even in the way of recovering after a great failure. Verse 17, David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped. 400 young men rode on camels and fled. And David, look at verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. What did God promise? God performed it and David recovered all. God promised it. God performed it. And listen, and David didn't deserve it. David didn't deserve that. But God's gracious. And again, what does the word recover mean? It means to get back, to regain what's lost, to bring back something to its original condition. David recovered all. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, God is in the recovery business. He's in the recovery business. He is a God of restoration. And even what our poor decisions may cause us to lose or ruin or mess up sometimes or what the enemy may take away, if we humbly turn to the Lord in genuine repentance and humility and say, Lord, I've been wrong and I want you to follow, I want you to to help me now to obey your leading. The Lord is able to bring about recovery in our lives sometimes that would blow our minds. And we can recover 
And God can restore because God's in the recovery business. What an amazing thing to have that hope for our lives. Let's stand. Let's pray together.